Welcome to this week's episode of Plot Summary. I'm Ted Bohorquez with News Talk KZRG. This is where I take everything me, Peter, and Steve talked about this week on the Morning News Watch, and I sum it up for you in a nice little plot summary. It's been a little while. I got stuck in California over the holiday break. Big issue with Southwest. We're going to jump right into it this week. Uh, The biggest thing that was going on was the House Speaker vote. Now, as we know, the red wave did not happen. Uh, We all thought it would. We all hoped it would, but it didn't. Republicans did take the House very, very narrowly, which, as it turns out, became a little bit of a problem this week. The House Speaker vote was going on. Now, typically, historically anyway, the House Speaker vote takes about, I don't know, one vote to secure a House Speaker. Our most recent one was the infamous Nancy Pelosi. And essentially, more or less the way it works in a very simplistic way is that if the Democrats have a majority in the House, they pretty much have the House, and all the Democrats get together and they say, okay, let's all vote for Nancy Pelosi, and um, and she'll be the Speaker of the House. And the Republicans, who, in this example, let's say don't have a majority in the House, they vote for whoever they think should be the Speaker of the House, and that person loses because it's majority rule. That's how democracy works. Bada-bing, bada-boom, pretty simple. Well, this week... Republicans who narrowly have the House, they have a very narrow majority in the House. They all got together and they said, hey, let's all vote for Kevin McCarthy. He's a, he's a Republican from California. They said, let's pick him to be the Speaker of the House and we'll all be good. Now, Kevin McCarthy needed 218 votes in order to become Speaker of the House because that was the majority. Well, here was the problem. A small subsect of Republicans did not really like that plan. A small subsect of Republicans, about 20 of them to be exact, said, no, we don't like McCarthy. And uh, that subsect was primarily led by Matt Gates of Florida. And they took a lot of issue with Kevin McCarthy. They were quoting saying, you know, he he voted yes for money for Ukraine. He voted yes for LGBT stuff in school. There was a lot of complaints that they had with this Kevin McCarthy guy. And these 20 or so Republicans, they said, look, man. We're not going to let the swamp continue to fester. We're not going to let the swamp continue to do its thing. We need an actual conservative, not a fake conservative like Kevin McCarthy. That was their argument in these in this last week. And so essentially what they did is they just kept voting. No, (laughs) they kept voting for someone else other than Kevin McCarthy. They were pushing a number of, of candidates, including Donald J. Trump. They were actually nominated Trump several times to become Speaker of the House in the United States, which was pretty funny, in my opinion. Um, But because they kept on detracting their vote for other people, no majority was ever reached. No majority was reached for the Democrat. No majority was reached for Kevin McCarthy, the Republican, the primary Republican. And no majority was reached for whichever candidate they were throwing out. And because no majority was reached, no Speaker of the House was elected. And that's where that holdup basically started is Republicans had a very narrow lead that they needed pretty much every Republican to agree, and there was a group of Republicans that didn't agree. And because they didn't agree, they couldn't reach a majority. Now, one of the key points of disagreement was these 20 Republicans thought Kevin McCarthy was too liberal. They were worried that he was going to work too closely with Democrats and sort of sell Republicans down the line. And they posited that the who the real Speaker of the House for the Republicans should be should be Jim Jordan. Jim Jordan was a name that they pushed forward time and time again. It's a name that a lot of really conservative Republicans would love to see run the House. But there is a huge, huge problem with Jim Jordan becoming Speaker of the House. And it is simply the fact that he doesn't want the job. He doesn't want to be Speaker of the House. In fact, Jim Jordan voiced his support for McCarthy. (laughs) I mean, the guy didn't want the job. 
He doesn't want it. He said McCarthy's a good guy. You should let him take the job. So the all-star pick for Speaker of the House from these holdout Republicans, Jim Jordan, he wasn't in the running. He didn't want the gig. And these holdout Republicans got a lot of flack this week as well, especially from the conservative side for a number of reasons. One of the big ones being Trump. Former President Donald Trump publicly backed McCarthy as Speaker of the House several times. He voiced full backing of Kevin McCarthy for Speaker of the House. And so people were saying, well, look, if Kevin McCarthy is such a rhino, then why is Donald Trump supporting him? Donald Trump, who, other than Reagan, is arguably the most iconic conservative face of our time, of any time, perhaps. How much of a rhino can Kevin McCarthy be if Trump likes him? So that was one counterargument. The other counterargument, specifically with the Jim Jordan thing, is that Jim Jordan said publicly several times that he didn't want the job. In fact, not only did Jim Jordan vote for Kevin McCarthy every time, he publicly voiced support for Kevin McCarthy, and he even went around the House and convinced other Republicans to vote for Kevin McCarthy, including our very own Missouri Congressman Eric Burleson. So Jim Jordan, yeah, everyone would have wanted him. He would have been fantastic. He didn't want the job. I mean, well, I mean, what would happen in that case, right? Like everyone votes for him and then he gets it. And then what does he say? Yeah, I decline. I, I don't want this. Or let's say, for instance, he does get the job. He has to do it. What are you going to put a gun to his head and make him go raise money for Republicans? <laughs> he wasn't interested. He, he had other goals, other aspirations. And so that was another big counter argument to these holdout Republicans was people were saying, look, man, the people that you want to run don't want to run. And we can't have that job filled with someone that doesn't want to run because they're not going to do the job. They're not going to be passionate about it. And so that more or less was pretty much the background of the whole House Speaker situation um, is essentially that because Republicans had such a narrow lead, a small group of Republicans were able to hold the entire thing hostage, so to speak. That's not casting judgment on one side or the other. The fact of the matter is Republicans barely had a majority. And you need a majority to elect a Speaker of the House. All these 20 Republicans had to do was say, I'm not going to do it because I don't think that McCarthy is conservative enough. I don't think he's a good choice. And they had sincere fear that he would work way more with the Democrats than he would with the Republicans. And if that's what they're fighting for, that's great. But in the end, that's what the big holdup was, was they wanted a more conservative leader than Kevin McCarthy. And because the Republicans had such a narrow majority, that small group was able to derail the whole thing. So how did it end? McCarthy did end up taking Speaker of the House. It took five days and 15 rounds of voting. 15 rounds of voting. The previous record for the number of rounds of voting that it took to elect a Speaker of the House was in the 1800s, and it took nine rounds. Nine. This one took 15 rounds. A lot of horse trading was done. McCarthy had to promise a lot of things to those 20 holdout conservatives. What those things are, we don't really know yet. But we do have a new Speaker of the House. That final 15th round of voting in which he was elected took place well after midnight on Friday night of this last week, which, you know what? It was an absolute mess. A lot of pundits and a lot of individuals are pointing out the fact that this was a little embarrassing for Republicans. But in the end... They got it done, and I have to give them a little bit of credit here. Good for them for not recessing until Monday. Good for them for sticking through it past midnight into all hours of the night to figure this out. I think that that is something we should applaud on politicians. I don't think we should allow them to take recesses whenever they get tired. We hired them to do a job. 
and they need to work until the job gets done. And that's what they did in this case. It took a long time. There's a lot of disagreeing. There's a lot of this and that. But in the end, they stuck with it, and they worked well after midnight, well into the middle of the night, in order to get this done. And I ought to applaud them there. Good for them. So that was that whole situation this week. Something else we discussed a lot this week on the Morning News Watch, of course, was the Biden administration. Um, they're always up to something, man. <laughs> they're, always, they're always doing something ridiculous. Well, this week, Joe Biden announced his border plan to help fix the border crisis. Finally, Joe Biden went to visit the border after two years, two years of essentially ignoring it. The Biden administration finally announced some sort of plan other than uh, chaos and send Kamala in to find out what the root cause is, which, by the way, uh, I did for Kamala a couple weeks ago. Um, I did find out actually what the root cause of all these migrants wanting to come to the U.S. What is the root cause? Why are they coming here? Well, it's because this country is freaking awesome. <laughs> it's because we're the number one country in the world. It's because we have freedom. It's because we have the right to protect ourselves. It's because we have the right to private property. And it's because we have the right to free speech. We have a fair justice system. And we have something called workers' rights. These are all things that a lot of countries in Central and South America don't have. So there's your root cause, Buster Brown. That's why they want to come here. Because it's awesome here. Bam. Root cause solved. And by the way, Kamala Harris still has not found the root cause. I just did it. I just did it in like 20 seconds. So, Kamala, where are you at? Anyway, Biden's new plan to help fix the border crisis is that he and his team are setting up an app. An app where migrants... From Nicaragua, Cuba, Haiti, and Venezuela will have an easier time to get to the states. Yes! Border crisis solved! All right! Good work, Joe. Good work, Brandon. We did it. No more border crisis. We have an app. (laughs) They launched an app. Um, He also said that 30,000 migrants from each of those countries will be accepted every year and flown on U.S. money from their country to the U.S., all they got to do is sign up in an app. They, they download this app. They fill out their information. And if they're the one of the 30,000 that are the lucky ones, then basically a private jet will show up and take them to the U.S. And that is how Brandon solved the border crisis. He made an app. Woo! Shout out to Silicon Valley. Um, now, there was obviously a lot of pushback on this plan, a lot of questions and a lot of confusion. Number one, they didn't really specify which migrants would be chosen. Uh, is it like the first 30,000 migrants to download this app and and do it? Or is it the first 30,000 skilled migrants to download this app and sign up? The only insight that we got from the Biden administration on how they're going to choose is they are going to prioritize migrants that have familial connections in the United States. So if they have family members in the U.S., those will be prioritized. And they said that kind of smugly, like, uh, oh, yeah, haha, we knew you'd ask, and we have the answer of how we're doing this. But th- no, that's not really an answer, because a lot of migrants have a lot of relatives in a lot of countries. What about, I don't know, let's say criminal history. Is that going to be taken into account, or is that a question on the app? You know, you download the app, have you committed a crime, yes or no? No? Great, come on in. I mean, (laughs) I wouldn't put it past them because that's pretty much what they did with COVID questionnaires. Have you been sick with COVID? Yes or no? No? Great. You're good. You passed the test. Good work. It's like, dude, what are you talking about? So there's that concern. And the other major piece of criticism over this plan is people were saying, how does this fix the illegal immigration crisis? 
Now, there seems to be a big disconnect between Republicans and Democrats about what the crisis on the border is. Republicans view the crisis as being, oh, I don't know, two million plus migrants illegally crossing the border. When Republicans say border crisis, that's the crisis they're referring to. But a little insight for you. When Democrats hear border crisis, the crisis in their mind is that the system is too difficult to allow migrants to get in. The real crisis to Democrats is that not enough migrants have come in. The system is too difficult. And for those of you that are confused, like why, what planet is Biden living on that developing an app to allow 30,000 immigrants from each random country in South and Central America will solve the border crisis? In Biden's mind, that is the crisis that Biden thinks that everyone's talking about right now. I mean, I mean, this is a simple definition issue. Biden defines the border crisis as it being too difficult for migrants to get in. The crisis in his mind is that the system is quote unquote broken and not enough migrants are able to get into the United States legally. And in his mind, in order to stop illegal immigration, allow all two million illegal migrants that cross the border, allow them to cross in legally. And then suddenly it's not illegal. Right. So essentially he's saying instead of catching the criminals, make all of their crimes legal and then crime will be down to zero. If everything is legal then nobody's committing crime. If murder was suddenly legal, then crime rates would drop dramatically, not because the place is safer, but because murder would no longer be classified as a crime. It would be classified as just a thing that happened and would no longer be included in those stats. (laughs) I mean, that's a great way to get crime rates in democratic cities to zero. Legalize everything, and then nothing is a crime. Crime is now at 0%. And that's sort of Biden's logic here. In his mind, the crisis is... It is too difficult for migrants to get into the United States legally. And that is the problem this app fixes. Great. Good work, Brandon. So then, unfortunately, it is the job of the Republicans now to redefine what's going on. Because, essentially, Brandon is a child. When a child has a hard time understanding a word, you don't yell at the child. You explain it in a different way that helps them out. And I think Republicans maybe need to re-explain the word crisis to Brandon. Maybe we need to be a little bit more specific. Maybe he just doesn't really understand the problem. Maybe we need to say something like, hey, Brandon, up at the White House, there is an issue of too many migrants coming into this country illegally all at once without any sort of criminal back check, without any sort of plan on what they're going to do once they get here. And they're all coming disproportionately to Republican border states. And that sheer number of individuals coming in is flooding the market and is destroying their infrastructure because their infrastructure was made to house Only so many people and no more. And unfortunately, they are putting stressors on the system that it wasn't built to handle. And that's the problem that Republicans have. Brandon, I'll give you a little analogy. Imagine a lifeboat that's designed to house six people. Well, what happens when 50 people get on that lifeboat? Um, It sinks. That's what happens. Because the weight that that lifeboat was able to handle was the weight of six people. But now that there's the weight of 50 people on it, It's not going to float all that well, is it? And that's sort of a nice little analogy. And in case you're a visual learner, Brandon, that's a nice little analogy for you to understand what the actual crisis that Republicans are talking about. The problem isn't that Republicans are racist. It's not that they don't like Mexicans. And it's not that they don't want to help other people from other countries out. That's not the problem. The problem is that all of these networks that are designed to house people, all the infrastructure, we're talking food, water, shelter, jobs, all that good stuff is only made to hold up so many people. And if you want to add more people to that, well, then we need to have more lifeboats. 
We need to have more infrastructure. But we don't at this time. So you can't allow 2 million migrants to just flood over the course of basically overnight and expect everything to go well. Because essentially what that is just like is having a lifeboat made for six people that suddenly has 50 people on it. And just like in that analogy, what's going to end up happening is we're all going to sink. So, yeah, Biden with the app. And and we're seeing right and we're already seeing, by the way, that this isn't going to really work long term. And, and I don't mean the app as as funny as that is. I actually kind of want to download it just to see just to see what's on it. Um, what I mean, though, is this long term plan of Biden's to just sort of allow an open border right off the bat. We all knew it was a terrible idea. Uh, Republican-led border states and border towns raise those alarms very early and very often, and yet they were ignored. Well, unfortunately, those towns were so overrun that it started spilling over into non-border Democratic towns. And this week, and this is very exciting news, they are now sounding the alarm. That's how much this plan isn't going to work long term. This plan of just open border, come as you please plan. The Democratic governor of Colorado, Jared Polis, Democrat. Democrat, said he will start transporting illegal migrants to New York City. Yeah. Why? Because the state's infrastructure cannot handle two million people just suddenly coming across the border. That's why. According to New York City Mayor Adams, quote, we were notified yesterday that the governor of Colorado is now stating that they're going to be sending migrants to places like New York and Chicago. This is just unfair for local governments to have to take on this national obligation, end quote. A couple of things here. Number one, Mayor Adams, you very publicly, very smugly said that you are a sanctuary city and you will allow anyone, anytime, all the time, forever. So put your money where your mouth is. You can talk the talk real good. Let's see you walk the walk. This is it. You said you are open for business. This is what business looks like. You did this. A. B. This is just unfair for local governments to have to take on this national obligation? Yeah, I agree with that very much. And guess what? Every single conservative border town in the country would also agree with that, which is why they have been pushing for the Biden administration, i.e. national, to deal with this problem. That's exactly why. I mean, it's just... I mean, Mayor Adams is finally starting to understand the frustration because everything he just said in that quote is stuff that Republicans have been saying for two years now. This is not something that local border towns should have to deal with. The national government should have to deal with this problem. They should be securing the borders. They should be prosecuting these illegal immigrants. They should be providing untold amount of funding to build more infrastructure if they want to have these migrants come in. Instead of $200 billion to Ukraine, $200 billion to the border. And we don't need to build a wall, okay? We don't need to have more police dogs. Build more houses for the migrants. Build more pipes for water for the migrants. Build more infrastructure to get food and clothing for the migrants. For God's sakes, do something for the migrants other than allowing them to come here and then freezing to death in the winter, man. I I mean... It's just nuts, so, and it's it's <laughs> it's actually really funny too. The other thing is that everyone is you know all these democratic cities are so high and mighty until the migrants actually show up in their backyard. It's really very ironic because the second that there was an overflooding in Colorado, the second there was an overflooding of migrants in Colorado, then suddenly this democratic high horse uh, you know governor said, "Well, we need to start shipping them out." Oh, wait a second. Suddenly, what these Republicans have been doing all this time, suddenly that makes sense now that you can actually see the problem firsthand. 
and New York City Mayor Adams. Oh, we're open for business. I, I think every you know small local government should be able to handle this problem. And now that they're over flooding his backyard, suddenly it's a big national crisis that we need to solve. Yeah, you know, I, I am judging these people, but I'm glad that they're finally realizing it's a problem because we can't solve the problem unless we all agree that it is a problem. And it looks like New York City Mayor Adams is finally starting to figure that out. And it looks like, you know, some of these other Republican or rather Democratic states are figuring that out. So good for them. They're late on the boat by about two years, but they got on. Now, uh, the Colorado Governor Polis, uh, he said that he was actually inspired by Republican Governor Greg Abbott of Texas, who has been busing illegal immigrants for months to New York City, Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, and Chicago. And as a matter of fact, he was also inspired by Governor Doug Ducey of Arizona, who had also been busing thousands of illegal immigrants to um, D.C. for months now. Um, the mayor of El Paso, Oscar Leeser, he's been busing illegal immigrants to the Big Apple, to New York City. Um, and so, look, this has been going on because... It's like a cup of water that's overfilled. Eventually, it's just gonna, you're going to have to just start putting that water somewhere else. And, and where they're putting it is New York, Chicago, these liberal, these liberal cities and states. They also, my favorite one is they bust a, a handful of immigrants, illegal immigrants, rather, to uh, Kamala Harris's house. <laughs> I just thought was funny. Yeah, you're so high and mighty. Why don't you welcome, welcome them into your home, Kamala? Which, by the way, she didn't. She turned them away. So that's hilarious. So, yeah, Biden with the app. Um, I think it's a great plan. <laughs> oh boy. Him and uh, Kamala really uh, really steering the ship here. Speaking of Kamala, something very interesting came out this week that we discussed on the morning news watch quite extensively actually was Kamala Harris's insecurities. <laughs> I never I never would have thought that this would make national news, but here it is. Kamala Harris is a very insecure person. Um that's something I feel like is pretty obvious, but Something very interesting this week is that those insecurities were spoke of this week by someone with firsthand experience. Former aides, former direct aides to Vice President Kamala Harris claim that she is gripped with deep, deep insecurities that cause her to lash out at others and create a toxic work environment. That is hilarious. These aides also claim that her office is completely dysfunctional and, in my opinion, the worst part of it, completely underprepared. This Aid came out. They said that Kamala Harris wouldn't do much prep on policies before announcing it. In fact, she would refuse to. Look, man, if if you're presenting something, you need to be a little bit prepared. We can't all be Vince Vaughn or Owen Wilson and just, you know, dome it off the top of our head and it come out eloquently and hilarious. Unfortunately, we can't all have that. And also, unfortunately, what Kamala Harris does is a lot more delicate than what Owen Wilson and Vince Vaughn does. What Vince Vaughn does is be funny. What Kamala Harris does is make decisions that directly affect millions of lives for the next 10 years. That's what Kamala Harris does. Yeah, I think you need to do a little bit of prep. Kamala Harris refused, apparently, to do all that much prep before announcing a policy. And it's not prep on how to speak or whose hand to shake. It's prep on the policy. So apparently in the past, a lot of these policies that she announces and discusses, a lot of these directions that she wants to take the country in, she doesn't actually even really know what they are. She essentially is regurgitating something that was written for her and she doesn't really understand it. That is concerning to me as a leader because a leader is supposed to lead, not just read. The other thing that was funny that came out is the, these aides said that she did a lot of what they call magical thinking of how things would play out. 
essentially in her mind, she thought, oh, I'm going to announce this policy and nobody's going to ask any questions and everyone's going to love the plan and the plan is going to go out super well and I'm going to become a hero. Oh my gosh, what an amazing policy plan that I just came up with. I might be a genius. Call me JFK. Call me Calvin Coolidge. Call me Van Buren. I'm a strategist. That's apparently from these people pretty much how she thinks. So then she goes out and she announces the policy and then some reporter raises their hand and says, uh, Madam Vice President, how is that going to solve the problem it aims to solve? And then Kamala immediately spirals. She wasn't prepared for that question. As a matter of fact, she wasn't prepared for any question. She didn't think anyone would ask questions. And that's pretty much how she operates according to these aides. Again, these are her aides. These are people that work with her directly. And something else that I found very interesting about um, this coming out this week was a pre-counter argument by these very aides. These aides that had firsthand experience that witnessed this came out and said this about Kamala Harris and about the function of her office and the lack of preparation. And right after they were done saying it, they said, people are going to claim that anyone raising these issues about Kamala Harris don't want to see black women succeed. They said, that is an argument I will undoubtedly hear as an ex-Kamala Harris aide that is raising these concerns about the vice president. And they immediately followed with this beautiful counter-argument. They said that does not make sense because anyone who wanted to work with Kamala Harris did so because they wanted to see her succeed. Guess what? Kamala Harris gets to pick her aides. It's not like they're voted or elected. And it's not like the military where they were already in that position and then they went from Trump to Biden and now Biden's their boss. Being an aide to the vice president of the United States is a highly sought after position if you are trying to get into politics. Everyone that was an aide to Kamala Harris was an aide because they wanted to be there. Not only did they want to be there, they fought to be there. Because there are probably millions of young people that want to work directly for the president or vice president of the United States. It's a very exciting job. Who wouldn't want to do that? So these aides actually fought to be there. And they fought to be with Kamala. They didn't fight to be with Pence. They didn't fight to be with Ted Cruz or Josh Hawley. They wanted to be with Kamala because they wanted to see her succeed. They wanted to be a part of this woke history. The first black female vice president. Oh, how exciting. That's what they wanted to be there for. They were excited for that. And so when they came out and, and raised these concerns about Vice President Harris, they were saying, and said, it has nothing to do with the fact that she's black or a woman. Because these people desperately wanted a black female vice president to be the most successful vice president. That's their, that was their whole dream. That was their whole goal. And it couldn't happen. So I think that's very telling of Vice President Kamala Harris. I think it's very scary. And um, I just thank God every day that she didn't become president. I'm actually, you know, it's funny. <laughs> it's funny. Joe Biden picking Kamala Harris to be his veep was probably the best thing that he ever could have done because suddenly Brendan is looking a lot better comparatively than what we could have had if Kamala Harris had become president. And finally, the last big thing that we discussed this week on the Morning News Watch uh, in terms of the Biden administration was uh, Biden had a number of little oopsies, as he usually does, the gaffe master himself. Biden accidentally referenced a recession that has happened recently. And uh, the big oopsie here and the accidental aspect of it is that he referenced the recession by name, calling it a recession. And the recession that he was referencing was the one that just months ago, him and his administration, his team insisted was not a recession. If you remember 
Joe Biden and his team in the White House and the left all said we're not in a recession. A recession isn't happening. Um, you know, all this stuff. And in a speech this week, he said not too long ago, this country was in a recession. And look how hard I worked to bring us out of the recession. Oopsie. So I guess it was a recession. Little frustrating um, to me, just the fact that these politicians just lie. I mean, that was just a lie. That wasn't a matter of a definitional issue. That wasn't a matter of a simple disagreement. You know, the first thing you learn in law school is reasonable people can disagree. And that's not what this case was. That was a case of just bold-faced lying because we were in a recession, and he knew we were in a recession. And he lied to everyone, and, and he, he stuck his dogs out after the right and said, we're not in a recession. Let every Twitter user in the, in the land know and tweet that we're not in a recession. And then here we are, slowly kind of trying to crawl out of it, and him saying, you know, thank God I was in charge because we really got out of that recession pretty well. A little frustrating. Good old, good old Biden gaffe. Um, the other, the other one too that was also a little frustrating in this very similar vein that we discussed was that the Biden had very quietly, his team very, very quietly came out about the results of the whole Keystone Pipeline thing. I, I, if you remember, um, the Keystone Pipeline was a very big issue early on in Biden's presidency. A lot of people wanted the Keystone Pipeline to continue, and Biden shut it down immediately, saying that it was bad for the environment and that it wouldn't actually create all that many jobs. Well, as it turns out, his team actually fully admitted, very quietly, mind you, but did fully admit that essentially it was a mistake to shut down the Keystone Pipeline. In his mandatory economic report, he said that the Keystone Pipeline, if it would have gone through, if construction would have continued through and wasn't shut down, it would have created anywhere between 16,000 and 59,000 jobs, and it would have generated anywhere between 3.4 and $9.6 billion. That's a lot of money that could have gone to Ukraine. <laughs> so, you know, again, back to this whole lying thing of just boldface not telling the truth. Uh, it's very frustrating. So that's pretty much what we discussed this week, Biden-wise. Um, a couple of other topics we hit on was uh, this truck ban that's going on in California right now. Shout out to the Golden State. California recently banned, uh, well, actually not recently. California previously banned, it recently took effect, all tractor trailers and buses made before 2010 from state highways. That doesn't sound all that crazy, but it actually is pretty wild. Uh, and the reason why is because that adds up to about 200,000 vehicles and about 70,000 tractor trailers. So why does this affect the Midwest? Why does this affect the four states area? Well, because we're all very interconnected. Our supply chain is very interconnected. And uh, as Peter pointed out very aptly, California is a coastal state. And so on coastal states uh, exist ports. And whatever imports we're getting from these California coasts in terms of supply chain, they're going to become a lot harder to get to the rest of the country. Because suddenly, 70,000 tractor trailers are no longer legally allowed to be on the roads in just the state of California. So all these trucking companies will now have to spend upwards of $200,000 per truck just to get the rest of the country the goods that we need and that we ordered. And so what with 70,000 trucks, $200,000 per truck to get a new engine or to get a new truck total. I just did the math on a calculator. It comes out to 1.4 E to 10. I don't even know what that means. It's a lot of money. We're talking like billions of dollars here. Uh, it's just it's just in, insane. And 
even though this law doesn't affect Missouri directly, it does affect Missouri in the sense that now these trucking companies that are based out of Missouri or in the four states area, if they want to drive in California, if they want to operate just just to drive through the state, they don't even need to do business with California, but just to drive through the state, they now need to completely overhaul their entire trucking army, anything older than 2010. The state really is holding hostage the rest of the country with this environmental stuff, saying, essentially, they're saying, yeah, you can go through our state. You know, you, you don't have, you know, your state doesn't have to pass these laws. But if the companies in your state don't adhere to our laws, then they can't use our roads. And guess what? Nobody's allowed to do anything. There's a great story of the, uh, you know, the robber baron Vanderbilt, who owned all the railroads back in the day. He owned a main line that went to the West Coast. And uh, a bunch of private other companies owned all these little offshoots. And Vanderbilt said, I want you to do what I want you to do. And they said, no, we have our own railroads. We're not going to adhere to your rules. And Vanderbilt said, fine. And he shut down his main line that he owned, that all the other offshoots shot from. And so even though these little companies were open for business, because the main line was closed, nothing can get through. You know, you have to get on the main line to get onto the offshoots. And once the main line is shut... Even though the offshoots are open, you still got to get on the main line first, but the main line shut down. So he starved them out. He said, do what I want to do, and then I'll reopen the main line, and then your businesses can continue working. And eventually he starved them out. And that's what California is doing to the rest of the country. They own sort of this main line, this sort of main line of goods, because they're on the coast, they have the ports. And even though Missouri companies, Arkansas companies... Even though these trucking companies from these four states are the ones moving the goods, because they have to go through California first, they can just say, well, screw you. I'm shutting it down. You have to do what I want. And we're going to pass these rules saying it's shut down until everyone passes these EV things or all these private companies adhere to our rules with all this environmental uh, you know, emissions stuff or, or you're not going to get anything. And that's what they're doing. I mean, I mean, essentially, they're kind of holding the goods hostage a little bit. And it is outrageously unfortunate, really. And uh, that was that's that is a big issue, especially because our supply chain is still wounded because of COVID and because of China. Our our supply chain isn't fixed yet. And here's just one more issue of the supply chain that we're going to have to deal with. Classic. And finally, the last big thing that we discussed this week on the morning news watch at News Talk KZRG, some huge news that rocked the nation in a very unfortunate way. Um, the Idaho murders. Uh, that's been a very big topic in the news cycle. There's a lot of intrigue. There was a lot of frustration at the Idaho murders. A little background here. Essentially, three girls and one guy. They were all students at the University of Idaho between the ages of 20 and 21. They were all murdered, murdered in their sleep. Um, essentially, all of these individuals, they were all good friends. The guy was the boyfriend of one of the girls. They were all in the same house. They all lived in this house, sort of a little college house situation. They were all there one night, and then they were murdered. Well... The suspect was caught. It came out this week that 28-year-old suspect Brian Koberger reportedly stalked the victims for weeks. And they know this because of cell phone tracking, cell phone pings. Basically, the way cell phone service works is as you move around, your phone jumps from one cell tower to the other. It's not like there's like one big cell tower in the middle of the country that you know shoots out every which way. It's like every 30 miles, there's another cell phone tower. And the second you get out of range of one cell phone tower, you're now in range of a different cell phone tower, so on and so forth. And so as you move around, your cell phone signal leapfrogs from tower to tower. And they can positively track this using IP addresses and all that good stuff. 
not necessarily Big Brother stuff. It's just sort of how it works. Now, these the victims, whichever tower their cell phones pinged on for weeks and weeks, Brian Koberger's cell phone also pinged. And so you could make the argument that he was following them around, or at least his cell phone was. It, it also came out this week that Koberger engaged in very suspicious activity after the murders, including wearing gloves constantly whenever he went to the stores, out in public, that sort of thing, both before and after the murders, as not to leave any fingerprints behind, supposedly. Now, Koberger was arrested in an early morning raid at his parents' house in Pennsylvania, which is pretty wild because these murders did happen in Idaho. So essentially what happened was, timeline-wise, now he wasn't found guilty yet, he hasn't been convicted, and, and in this country, you're presumed innocent until found guilty. So supposedly this individual went ahead and murdered these college students and then drove cross-country back to Pennsylvania, where he was initially from. Now, Koberger, a little history behind this individual. He was a criminology student in Washington, which is, and they were right on the border there. Some classmates came out and said that he would often speak over his professors, that some of which were world-renowned criminology individuals, speak over them as if he knew more and that sort of thing, and kind of challenge them a lot in ways that were not healthy or did not engage in normal debate in ways of more steamrolly e. Supposedly, Koberger kept to himself a lot, and also supposedly he was a little weird around women. According to an affidavit from police that was released this week, there's a number of reasons why they believe it's Koberger. Number one is these victims were stabbed to death, and while they have not found the murder weapon, they did find a, a knife sheaf, you know, one of those little cases knives go into. They did find a knife sheaf at the crime scene, and on it, they found Koberger's DNA with a 99% match. Now, they didn't state if it was skin cell DNA, saliva DNA, or uh, like fingerprints, you know, sort of situation. They didn't specify which one. But apparently they have a 99% DNA match on that knife sheath. They have the evidence of his cell phone pingings being all around their location, including the murders took place in the middle of the night, and they were reported the next morning at around 11 a.m., and his cell phone pinged in the same location of their home at 9 a.m. the next day, almost as if he was returning to the crime scene sort of thing. And he didn't really have any business there. I mean, he didn't have class there or anything. He didn't know anyone there. There's no real reason to be in that area the next morning. So that was a little suspicious. And the other big thing is they have surveillance evidence of his vehicle in the area of the murders leading up to the murders and on the night of the murders and then not really again sort of disappeared. Another suspicious point of evidence towards Koberger was supposedly a couple of days after the murders, he filed to get a new license plate. <laughs> he was trying to get new license plates on his car. Little weird, you know. Yeah, I, you know that's a little suspicious. I think I'm, I'm, I haven't committed murders, and guess what? I'm not trying to get new license plates. I, I don't really care what my license plate is. <laughs> so that's a little bit suspicious. So they did book him, um, and we'll see, we'll see where it goes. His court date is later this month. It is definitely a really sad and unfortunate situation, but hopefully justice will be found, and uh, I have no doubt that this is something that we'll be talking about more. Anyway, that's pretty much the big stuff that we discussed this week on the Morning News Watch at News Talk KZRG. Be sure to tune in this week. You can catch us on the airwaves, or you can go to our Facebook page. We do a live stream every morning, and uh, if you're not up that early in the morning, it's all good, because the live stream is also recorded. So even when we're off air, you can always go back and watch the recording, and if you ever miss anything... You can always catch it right here on Plot Summary with News Talk, KZRG.